feel free to go ahead and grab your seats. Well, good morning, Forefront. It's so good to be with you guys this morning. Hope you're having a great weekend. If you're visiting with us, my name is Drew, and I'm the lead pastor here. We're so glad that you chose to spend your Sunday with us. Hey, if you have your Bibles, let's grab those. Let's open up to the book of James, and we'll be in James chapter 5 this morning. If you've been with us the past couple of months, we've been working our way through the book of James, and we've seen that James really kind of gets in our face a little bit and, and steps on our toes, and that James is talking to us about how to get real with our faith. And one of the things that James has been saying throughout this entire letter is that if you want to know what's going on inside of you, then look at the external and how you're living your life. And so James says, if you want to know what the state of your heart is, then just look at your words. Look at your relationships. If you want to see the quality of the genuineness of your faith, then look at the way you live out your faith. And today in chapter 5, James is going to say, if you want to know the state of your heart, just see how you view money. When Courtney and I were young, younger, and had just gotten married, we loved to do the what if talk. You guys ever had the what if talk? You know, what would you do if? What would you do if you had the the wealthy aunt or uncle that left you an inheritance you didn't know about? What would you do if Jeff Bezos came to you and handed you a blank check and said, hey, write whatever number you want? What would you do if you won the lottery? How would you spend your money? And it's kind of a fun talk, right? I think some of us have had that. It's kind of a silly little game, but a lot of times we talk about the cars we'll buy, the vacation homes we would move to, kind of things. But I think at the heart of that, and I'm sure many of you guys have had that same chat, at the heart of that is the, the, the question, how much money would it take to change my life? You guys ever thought about that before? Like, if, if you had to put a number to it, how much money would it take to change your life? Would it be double the salary you make now? Would it be that blank check from Jeff Bezos that would really change everything? How much would it actually take? See, I, I think one, one of the things that a lot of us have underneath the, the surface is this belief that if I could just reach a certain place then everything will be okay. I can, I can buy the things that I want to buy. I can have the things I, want, I need to have. I can pay off the debt for the things that I need to pay off. And then finally, I'll have the freedom to live my life however I want. And so I, I want to ask the question today, is that true? Like, did God design the world to work in such a way where life was about accumulating enough things and earning enough to where I could be comfortable to live life the way that I feel like life should be lived? You know, it's really interesting. I, I, interesting. I came across a couple studies this week. Um, as social psychology is really trying to, to understand what it is that makes us tick and how there's this correlation between wealth and between happiness. And you guys may have seen the study. It came out a few years ago. In 2010, Princeton University did a study about this correlation. And notice what they found. This is fascinating. The study says, a 2010 study out of Princeton University found that there's a correlation between happiness and wealth. To a point of about $75,000 per year. When people make more than $75,000 a year, their happiness doesn't increase. Marginal returns. But the lower their income is, the worse they feel, the study found. That's fascinating. That there was a number that's been tied to say, if I could just get to this place, then I'll feel happy. Then I'll feel satisfied. But anything over that, it doesn't really 
balance. Okay, notice this one. This is another study. Uh, There's a man by the name of Paul Wachtel. He wrote a book called The Power of Affluence. Notice what he found in his study. He says this, a higher percentage of those with grammar school educations and poverty level incomes report themselves very satisfied with life than do college graduates with high incomes. Now notice the difference, one side of the scale versus the other. So how do you reconcile the two? How do we find a balance between these two things? And I think what we see is something that the Bible's been telling us all along. Is that it's not about what you make or how much you don't have. It's about your view and your attitude towards money. And I think if we dig through the pages of Scripture, and if we look at the words of Jesus, we see that it's all about our view of money that directs the way that you view life. I I really love what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. Jesus is talking about how this pursuit of life, and remember, this is 2,000 years ago. This pursuit of life and this accumulation of things and, and getting our hands around as much as we can doesn't lead us where we think it will. Notice what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6. Many of you are familiar with this verse, talking about laying up treasure. Here's what Jesus says. He says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Notice what he says. He says this, verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so Jesus is saying that, that there is this correlation between how we view money and how we view the quality of our life. And if we view money as being that thing that's going to set us apart and bring us happiness and satisfaction, then we're going to place our heart around those things, and that's where our treasure will be found. And so ultimately what Jesus and the Bible are going to teach us is that living with an unhealthy view of money leads us to a place where we begin trusting in something that really won't ever deliver for us. And this is what James is going to talk about here in James chapter 5. And and thankfully, James gives us really a pattern and and a, a formula for how we identify, have we allowed our view of money to change the way that we see the world? Notice what James says. If you have your Bibles open, to James chapter 5. If not, we'll put the words on the screen. Here's what James says. James says, Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of The laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Verse 5, you have lived on the earth in luxury, and in self-indulgence you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Forefront, that is a really hard verse. That is a difficult one. And when we come across verses like this, is a good, one, of the, one of the things I really like is that we work verse by verse through books of the Bible because otherwise we'd want to skip something like this, right? Like this is a little bit tricky to navigate and understand what James is saying. But I think James is wanting to step on our toes a little bit and to have us to wake up to a reality that exists for all of us. And that is an unhealthy view of money can lead us down a path we don't want to go. Now, James, uh, most scholars agree that James is specifically writing to a group of non-Christians outside the church who were wealthy landowners in the first century and who were taking advantage of Christians in the church. 
And so in James really calling out these, these wealthy landowners who uh, were, were taking advantage and, and hurting people, he's giving us a warning too. He's giving us a warning about how wealth can steer us down a path that is dangerous and will pull our eyes off of what God is doing in our life. I think for some of us, though, it's easy when we read this verse, though, to kind of move beyond it. Because in verse 1, he says, come now, you rich. And you might say, well, thank God I'm not rich, right? I can just kind of sit back and, you know, play on Facebook a little bit or check Instagram and just coach this one out. Because thankfully, James isn't talking to me. But, you know, it's interesting. I think... um, we, we in, in, in the U.S., have this different view compared to around the globe. There, there's a website you can go to. It's called globalrichlist.com, and you can literally plug in your annual salary, and you can see how you compare to the rest of the world. So I did this for you. You can thank me later. So check this out. If you make $25,000 a year, $25,000 a year, you are, according to globalrichlist.com, richer than 93.4% of the world. Now, we hear that number and we think, whoa, 25,000 a year. Okay, hold on. That just shows you the global scale. Now, how about this? How about 50,000? Let's bump it up. If you make $50,000 a year, you are in the richest 1.5% of the world. Now, somebody in, in living in, in kind of the, the, the America today, that should stand out to us. Like, whoa, really? 1.5% of the world. But how about that $75,000 number, that, the study that Princeton found? Notice what that says. If you make $75,000 a year, you are living as the top 1% richest person, people in the world. So that that gives us just a little glimpse of the fact that when James is talking to these rich landowners, he's giving us a warning that can impact all of us. That no matter where we find ourselves, if we're living in the U.S. in this day and age, we have this threat and this warning should stand out to us. And so James is going to really draw us in to this idea that all of us have the potential to have an unhealthy view of money. And James is going to say more than any other thing, more than your words and more than your actions, your heart can be seen by the way that you view money and by the way that you view wealth. Notice how Paul says it in 1 Timothy 6, verse 10. Paul says this. Paul says it's for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Now, I think a lot of us have been, are maybe familiar with this verse. If you grew up in the church or have maybe read any, any books by Dave Ramsey, but you're going you're gonna to see that a lot of times we talk about money being the root of all kinds of evils. But Paul says, no, it's the love of money. It's the unhealthy view of money. And anytime we talk about money, it kind of stirs us up a little bit, and we say, this is not really a topic I want to talk about, especially at church. But I think it's important that we cover it because James has got some really serious life lessons for us. That if we take the heart, can change the way we, not only do we view money, but do we view ourselves and the way that we hold on to things. What we find our hope in and where we find our security. And so James is really going to dig into this. And um, the, the Bible talks a lot about money. And so that's why I think it's something we need to take serious. Did you know that out of all of Jesus' 38 parables, Jesus talks about money in 16 of them? That there are 500 verses in the Bible about prayer and 500 verses in the Bible about faith, but 2,000 verses in the Bible about money. An uncomfortable topic, but it's one that the Bible has a lot to say about. And so as believers, we really need to pay attention because what James is trying to direct us away from is the sin of materialism. And you might say, well, what is materialism? Let me define it for you. Here is Webster's definition of materialism. 
It's a tendency to consider material possessions and physical comfort as more important than spiritual values. Now, my, my guess is, though, that none of you look at that definition and say, oh, that's me, right? That's me. I'm a materialist. Materialism is my issue. But I, I think if we dig deeper into some of the struggles and heartbreaks and heartburns that we feel in life from jealousy and, and envy and, and strife and challenges at work and challenges with family, we can uncover it that at the heart of a lot of that has to do with an unhealthy view of money. And the reality is it's in our face all the time. Forbes did a study, and what Forbes found was that the average American driving home, driving to work, driving home from work, at home, watching TV, scrolling through Instagram, the average American sees between 4,000 and 10,000 ads a day. Now, that, a lot of that is just sensory, right? We're not paying attention to them, but they're there. Billboards on I-25, ads on your phone, checking your email. There are things in front of you all the time. And what culture says to you is you need this if you want to truly live life to the fullest, right? Ads are saying if you don't have this, then how can you truly experience the richness of life? The reality is if you're not driving a new Ford Bronco, calling Jake at State Farm on your new Verizon phone, you're missing out, right? That's what ad, the ad world would have us believe, and what happens is we get to this place where we are so um, maybe discipled by culture where we start to think to ourselves that, well, yeah, I, I need to have a certain level to, 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 value, to be valued and to matter and to, to make it. And I think that's, a, that's what that Princeton study is getting at. And, and so what it leads us to do, though, is to believe at a root level under the surface that it's a, there is a place and a happiness and a joy and a satisfaction that's found when I finally have enough. And it leads us to a place where I begin to put my hope and my security and my affections in that thing. And it leads us, as the Bible tells us, to a place of idolatry. You might say, what's idolatry? Well, here's a really good working definition. The definition of idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator. And so when money and wealth and these things that are kind of drawing us in are, are grabbing our attention and they are the things that we begin to trust in, then they become an idol in our life. So how do you know what you're trusting in? Well, what is it that causes you anxiety? What is it that keeps you up at night? What is it that stirs you up? Is it a car? Is it a house? Is it a 401k? If it's any of those things, then it can be tied to this view of money. So James is trying to get us to just wake up and to see it's not about how much money you have or how much money you don't have, how much money you make or how little you make. It's all about how you view what God has given you. And so here in this text, in these six verses where James is coming after these landowners, we see James really gives us three warnings to how to, to help us see why we need to avoid materialism and keep our eyes focused on Jesus at all times. Let me show you the first one. The first one is this. James says that an unhealthy view of money leads to trusting in things that can't deliver. That when we have an unhealthy view of money, it leads us, whether we know it or not, we're trusting in something that isn't meant to deliver, that actually cannot deliver. Look back at verses 2 and 3. Notice what James says. Again, remember, James is talking to these wealthy landowners, and he's, he's coming after them, and he's saying this, that your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. Like, come on, James, this is some serious language. He says, you have laid up treasure in the last 
days. And James isn't holding back any punches. I mean, notice what he's saying right there. He's just talking about our garments are rotted and and moth-eaten and and all these things. And this is really hard to hear. But what he wants us to see is that anything that is made of earthly things will decay. And anything that is material will fade. Now, I don't know about you guys, but this is hard to read. Because I'm sure, like many of you, we work hard for what we have, right? We go to school, we get good educations, we get good jobs, so we can provide for our families, and we can buy nice things and have cars that are safe and houses that keep us warm. And for James to say that none of that matters, or it all corrodes and we're laying up our treasure in the wrong things, that's hard to hear. But I want us to, to, to drill down and to see what James is really getting at. He's just saying that don't, don't construe something that was created for something that is the creator. Don't confuse the gift from the giver. I like what Dietrich Bonhoeffer has to say. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he lived in, in Germany around the time of World War II and, and actually had a, a plot to take out Hitler. He was a Christian man. He got found and ended up losing his life. And he, he, He's written so many fantastic books. But I love this quote. He says this. He says that earthly goods deceive the human heart into believing that they give it security and freedom from worry. But in truth, they are what cause anxiety. And again, we, we think to ourselves, well, if I could just get the house or the car or get my student loans paid off or do these things, then I'll feel free of anxiety and then I'll feel free of worry and then I'll finally feel security and freedom. But Bonhoeffer is echoing the words of Jesus that where your heart is, your treasure will be also. And if you're putting your treasure in early things, it's not going to last. They're going to corrode and rot and fade. Now, of course we know this. I mean, of course we know that things don't last. We know that houses need new roofs. We know that cars break down. We know that new clothes get snagged, or you can scuff your new pair of shoes. We know these things that they don't last, but yet, I don't know about you guys, but it just seems like deep down, there's something inside of me that wants to believe they will, right? You guys ever have that? You just think that, okay, nothing so far has worked, but this thing will. Here's how you know it's true, that things don't last. What was it that you wanted so badly for Christmas three years ago? Think about that. 2018, what was it that you wanted so badly? I remember a few years ago, it was a couple years before, the PS4 came out, and I wanted the PlayStation 4 so bad. That's that's all I could think about. For like six months, I'm sending Courtney like little hints, and I'm sending her links and screenshots and pretending I'm playing, you know, my old, dusty old PS3 didn't work anymore, you know. And so I get this PS4, and I'm so stoked. I go out and buy a couple games, and I think I played it like twice. You know, and it just collects games. It's basically an expensive DVD player. Did it change my life? I could have swore it was going to change my life, but it didn't. See, what about for you? Whatever it was for Christmas in 2018 that you wanted so badly, let me, let me just guess. It maybe ended up at Goodwill or at a garage sale or at the garbage dump. And then we think, well, that wasn't it, but it's going to be the next thing. So I, don't, I think any, maybe, maybe more than technology, nothing else shows how real this was. I remember when the iPhone came out. Anybody here get the first iPhone, 2008? Nobody? Okay, you guys waited. You guys, were, you guys weren't early adopters, right? You guys wanted to see if this thing was legit. I didn't either. I waited. I think my first iPhone was the iPhone 4. And it's sad to say that I remember when that first iPhone came out, I thought this thing is going to change my life. This is it. I got everything. I'm never going to need anything else until the next year when the iPhone 5 came out, right? I think 
sadly to say, I'm, I'm going to apologize in advance. This confession time, I think I've had five iPhones since then, right? I, you know, it's, yeah, oh, the eight, you got to get to eight. No, you got to get to 10. Oh, and you got to get to 12. The camera is so good. And again, every time you open that, and by the way, kudos to Apple for branding, right? When you open that iPhone, it's like, you know what I'm talking about? Oh, it's so good. It's just like, I, I put it back in and open it again, you know, it, but it never makes that sound again. You know what I'm talking about? But you're like, this is going to change my life. But if you look back at the old iPhone, it looks like a, like a kid's toy, right? So is there anything wrong with having an iPhone? No. I mean, is there anything wrong with having a nice house? No. Is there anything wrong with having a nice car? No. Is there anything wrong with not having an iPhone and having an Android? Yes, there is. And if that's you, you guys need to get with Jesus. Seriously. I, just, there's, I don't know. Green text bubbles are like the worst thing. But what James is trying to get us to see is that nothing we can get our hands on lasts. It all corrodes. It all breaks. It all goes out of style. It all gets scuffed. To the point, notice what James says in verse 3. He says this. He says that your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and eat your flesh like fire. Now, if you're a science buff in here, you're probably going, aha, gold doesn't corrode. Gold is the uncorrodable metal. But this is what James is saying. That even what you believe is the uncorrodable metal will corrode. And not will it corrode. It'll corrode you. Because it'll draw your heart into trusting in something that could never deliver. I don't know about you, when I first read this verse, here's who I pictured. Who's that? Ebenezer Scrooge, right? Or how about this guy? Ooh, who's that? My precious. Right? I envision Scrooge. I envision Gollum. I envision these people that, that have just this unhealthy love for money, and it's caused them to hurt people. But if you guys have seen the movies, you know that Scrooge and Gollum didn't start off looking like that. But their unhealthy love and view of money took them down the wrong path and it ate them up from the inside out. And this is what Jesus is saying, or James is saying, that it's going to corrode us. It's going to eat our flesh like fire. It's going to do something to us that we never could have imagined. And so he's warning us for trusting in something that doesn't last. And this is exactly what he says here in verse 3, that we've laid up treasure in the last days and we can't take our treasure with us. The Egyptians thought they could, and every coffin we open up is full of gold. You can't take it with you. See, I think at the heart of what is going on here is I think James is trying to get us to see that we are created in the image of God, which meaning that we are eternal beings, and eternal beings can never be satisfied by temporal things. That something that's made to, to be temporary can never satisfy the eternal there was a book written a few years ago called Twilight of the Elites. And in this book, um, they, it was the Fidelity Investment Company surveyed um, a group of people that had at least $1 million in assets. And so they're talking to these people who I think many of us would say, okay, these people have wealth. And so they asked these people who had a uh, million dollars or more in assets, and, and that includes real estate and retirement. And 42% of the people surveyed said they did not feel wealthy. If you want to go read that book, it's written by a guy named Christopher Hayes, The Twilight of the Elites. And so it's this idea that we, we think once we get to a certain place and we have enough things that it's going to make us feel like we have it, but when we get there, we feel like we haven't arrived yet. And you guys know this is true in our lives because we think, well, if I could just get a car that runs, 
and live on my own, right, then life's going to be good. And then it's, well, if I could just get a car that's big enough for my family and have a house that stays cool in the summer, then life will be good. And then it's going to be, well, if I could just get the Jeep to go Jeeping with and the house on the beach, then life will be good. And it escalates and it escalates and it escalates. And all of those things can be very good things on their own. It just depends. Is that what we're finding our hope and satisfaction in? Notice how Charles Spurgeon says it. He says this. You say, if I had a little more, I should be very satisfied. You make a mistake. If you are not content with what you have, you would not be satisfied if it were double. So James is saying, guys, just wake up to the fact that if we're looking at money in the wrong way, if materialism and idolatry has gripped our hearts, then we're going to begin trusting in something that was never meant to satisfy. But notice what he says second here. He says this, that an unhealthy view of money leads to compromised integrity. So not only does it lead you to trust in something that's not meant to trust in, it leads you to compromise integrity. Look back at verse 4. And this is when he really gets after these guys. Notice what he says in verse 4. He says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So again, what scholars are saying is happening is that many of these, of these first century Christians have, when persecution came, they fled their homes. And they moved to new areas. And they left their land and they began taking jobs working for landowners. And what was happening was these rich landowners weren't paying them their due. They, they were holding back wages and they were, they were defrauding these workers. And so these workers are now crying out because they're being taken advantage of. And so James is calling them out, but he's also giving us a warning that an unhealthy view of money for us can lead us to do the same thing. I like what Solomon writes in Proverbs 11.3. He says that the integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. And history is full of this, guys. You guys have seen it. Some of you have even experienced it. And we can think of the big examples like Enron and WorldCom and Bernie Madoff. But unfortunately, this happens all the time. And some of you may be on the negative side of this. And you may be in a job now where you're not getting paid what you should be getting paid. Or you may be in a place now where somebody owes you something and they've refused to pay you. And you're struggling with that and you're crying out to God. And, and I want you to know that God hears your prayers and God hears your cries. And that our prayer is that justice is always done. And we know that God will pay those who deserve justice at the right time, their justice. But it's a warning for us to watch out and make sure that this unhealthy view of money doesn't take us down the wrong path. Because what can happen is it can lead us to cut corners. It can ultimately lead us to run people over. And what it does is when we compromise our integrity, it leads us to live, move from being open-handed to closed-fisted. And we start to say, whatever I have, whatever's around me, I'm going to hold it as tight as I can because I just can't lose it. So James says, be aware that love of money can lead you Materialism can lead you to compromise your integrity. And one of the ways that we see this play out is when we close our hands. And so you may be here today and you might be a, you might be a supervisor, you might be an owner, and, and you might have to ask yourself that question, how am I pursuing my employees? And you have to look at your own heart. I think James wants us to look and say, how, how do I respond when it comes to things that I owe people? Am I a good tipper? That's a good way to check it too. 
what is my approach with money? James wants to get our attention before we go too far. When Emma, my oldest daughter, she's nine, almost, she's nine now, when she was about four, we were at the store and we were shopping and I, I don't know, you, you know, you got the little one around you and we had Hallie and a little pumpkin seed. I wasn't paying attention. So we're walking out from the store to the car and Emma's just got this big old smile on her face and she's just feeling good. And I look behind her and she's got one of those big cylinders of M&Ms. You guys, you guys know what I'm talking about? And she's like, daddy, look what I got. Look what I found. It's like, where'd you find that? Oh, it was on the bottom shelf right by the register. I just took it because it was mine. And I'm like, okay, opportunity, right, parents? Moms and dads, it's an opportunity. So you get real low on their level, you know, and kind of explain to them that if we didn't pay for it, it's not ours yet. And so we had to go back inside and do the walk of shame. Anybody ever done the walk of shame? That walk of shame is hard. You know, and she's just scuffling her feet, you know, and it's got that little perked little lip, and it just tore me up. But as a dad, I coached her up what to say. So we walk in, she walks up to the counter, and she looks at the cashier, and she's like, I took this, and I shouldn't have. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? It was the cutest little thing. She set it right back there on the counter. And then we walked out, and, you know, she learned a lesson, and thankfully, you know, nothing since, right? How about in our life, when we think about our integrity towards money, is there anything we need to take back to the counter? Is there anything that we took that we shouldn't have taken? Anything that we owe that we need to pay? There's a compromise integrity that happens from an unhealthy view of money and wealth. And James is trying to get our attention. I like what Augustine has to say about, about this idea when we close our fists. Here's what Augustine says. He says that God is always trying to give good things to us, but our hands are too full to receive them. So sometimes we've got to open our hands up. So what is it that God's stirring up inside of us? Have we compromised our integrity when it comes to money? The third thing James says about unhealthy views of money, he says this. An unhealthy view of money causes us to miss the big picture. It causes us to miss the big picture. It causes us to miss out on what God is doing and how God is working in my life and in yours. Notice what he says in verse 5. He says in verse 5 that you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. And you have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. Again, like, man, James, you're just coming after these guys. But it's a warning to us. It, it's a warning to us that so often when we fall into materialism or we fall into idolatry towards wealth and money and things, it causes us to distort our view of reality. And that works in two ways. It distorts my view of me and it distorts my view of you. This is what James is talking about here. Because when my view of me is distorted, I begin to think it's all about me. Right? I begin to think it's all about what I can get my hands around or what's going to make me happy or what's going to lead me to a place where I feel satisfied. And James says when we do that, we're living a life of luxury and we aren't paying attention to what anything else around us is going on. He actually uses a, real, a ranching illustration. Any ranchers in the room? He uses a ranching illustration of fattening Cat, or fattening cattle before it goes to slaughter. It was interesting. I was reading about this this week. Did you guys know that when ranchers are finishing, finishing cattle to take them to slaughter, they let them eat and eat and eat. And so they just graze and graze and graze. And often a cow on its way to slaughter eats 4% of its body weight a day, which means if it's a 1,000-pound cow, do the math real quick. What's that? 40 pounds of food a day it's eating. And that cow has no idea what's coming, does it? It's just, right, just chewing, just eating. No idea what tomorrow brings. This is what James says happens to us when our view of ourselves is distorted, that we're just doing our thing, 
eating our, eating whatever cows eat, doing that kind of thing until it's too late. But not only does it distort our view of me, it distorts my view of you. It distorts our view of others. Look at verse 6. He says that you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now, James is, you know, I think it's easy for us to be like, James, that's a little strong language. This is the second time in this letter James has used the word murder. What is he talking about? Now, most scholars don't think he's actually talking about murder. He thinks he's just being, um, using illustration to try to show that how much these people's fraud is hurting people. But let me ask you this. Think of your favorite mystery shows. Think of your favorite mystery novels. How many of them at the root have something to do with money? Most, of our, most mysteries at some point have something to do with money. And so James may not be that far off because each of us in our, in our lives have seen broken relationships because of money. We've seen ruined careers because of money. We've seen tarnished reputations because of money. So James may not be that far off here. But what he's trying to say is if life is all about what I can get and what I can have and what I can accumulate, then I'm completely missing out on how God wants to use me in your life. And when my view of me and my view of you is distorted, I miss the fact that God has invited me to play a part into the greatest story ever told. One of my favorite accounts that Jesus has in the Gospels is in Mark 10. And in Mark chapter 10, Jesus and his disciples are moving from place to place. Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God and what real, rich, deep life looks like. And there's a man that walks up to Jesus, young man with a lot of wealth. Mark calls him the rich young ruler. And he comes up to Jesus and he says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus knows his heart. Jesus looks at him and he, he gives him the, 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 the second half of the commandments. He says, well, you need to love your mother and your father. You know, don't steal, don't lie, don't murder. And he's like, I've done all those things. I've done them all. But Jesus knew his heart. He knew that his heart strings were wrapped around his wealth and that he had fallen into materialism and that his identity was found in what he had. And so Jesus knew that he was made money an idol. So Jesus says, okay, well, there's only one more thing you need to do then. You need to go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Jesus knew his heart. This guy, we don't know his name, but this man had an opportunity to have his name written in the Bible as somebody that had an encounter with Jesus and his life changed and it changed the landscape of his world and he was able to take part in the story that God had for him. But you know what happened instead? The Bible tells us, Mark tells us, that he went away sad, exceedingly sad. And now we have his story in the Bible as a warning of what not to do. He had a choice to make, and he made the wrong choice. And so Jesus and James are trying to show us that we are invited into this big, beautiful story. That God, in, God has so much more for our life than just trying to wrap our hands around things and hold on to them tight. That there's a richness and a deepness and a beautiful aspect of life that is in front of us. But we can't see it if our view and reality is distorted by what it is that I want so Jesus is trying to get us to evaluate our hearts today and ask the question, are, am I viewing money as something that I find my hope in? Is my view of money leading me to compromise my integrity? Is my view of money distorting my reality? Because if it is, we need to get real and address it and not let it continue on. 
So how do we do this? Let me end with this. How, how do we do this? What's our takeaway? How do we fight the four to 10,000 ads we see a day? How do we go to war with the culture around us that tells us that we need to make a certain amount or have a certain thing if we're going to matter? How do we deal with this internal struggle that we have inside of us that says, I need more? I think the only way we can do this forefront is by remembering the gospel every single day. The only way we can do this is by finding our identity in who Jesus says we are. Because, and it's the reminder that actually everything we have isn't ours. That all of the things that we have in our life and in our bank accounts and in our 401ks and the things that are in the parking lot, none of them are ours. They're all gifts. They're all things that God has given us, but they ultimately aren't ours. Because we came in this world with nothing and we leave with nothing. But Jesus, the one who had everything, stepped out of heaven and came down here for us and traded places with us so we can have a richness and a fullness and a deepness in life that we could never have without him. And the only way that we can ever move from the grips of materialism and idolatry to fullness of life with Jesus is realizing that my identity is in Jesus and it's not in how much money I have. My identity is in Jesus and being a son or a daughter of God, and it's not in how big of a house I have or what my retirement account looks like. It's all about being the saved, redeemed, rescued, set free, forgiven son or daughter of God. Amen? That's our identity. And to realize that God has invited us into the greatest story ever written, a story to help push back darkness and shine the light of Jesus to this dark world. So how do we do that? Well, one simple takeaway. I say simple. It's not simple at all. We fight materialism with generosity. I'm going to close with a quote by Matt Chandler. Here's what Matt Chandler says. He says this. He says, put your treasure on the things above so heaven serves as a magnet to your thoughts, for your affections, and for your joy. Get treasure up here so your heart and your thoughts and the shape of your lives are shaped and molded by Christ and not by the transient stuff that's on its way to the garbage. So how do we fight materialism in our life? How do we fight the tug of greed? How do we fight the idolatry that can so easily come? Well, God has given us the formula and the mechanism to push that back, and that's through generosity. And that's through giving our lives away. Now we have to be smart about it. We have to grow in financial wisdom. We have to have a, a heart to pursue contentment. But the Bible tells us that when we give ourselves away, God does something incredible in our hearts. He shifts our focus from me to him, where our focus should be in the first place. And so you might say, well, what does this look like for me? What does this look like for my life. I think it's, as, it's as, as basic as being intentional to be generous. That means that when it comes to your budget, that you have a line item in your budget for generosity. And you may not say, I may not have anything to give right now. And I say, just start somewhere. I think the Bible teaches us that God loves a cheerful giver. Now, it's not trying to guilt you into giving. God wants you to give because it's a way for us to become free, freed from materialism and the idols that money can bring. And so making a plan to be generous, whatever that looks like, start as small, but make a plan to be generous and to give away. Find ministries that you can give towards so you know that God is going to work in, that God is going to use those to push back the darkness. 
So we believe the church is the tip of the spear for this. That this is where we go plant churches and we send missionaries around the world and we help the needy people in our neighborhoods. And God invites us in to the greatest story ever told. told. And he says, when we turn our hearts and give to him, it changes our hearts from seeing me first to seeing him first. And God will use that to help use us to change the world. So forefront, my prayer for you guys this week is just to spend some time in James 5. See James' words and how harsh they are for these unchristian rich people living in the first century and ask, God, have I fallen into this trap at all? Because if I have, stir up my affections for you and help me see how you want to use me in this greatest story ever told. Forefront, let's pray together.